You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us on Real Presence Live this morning. Your hosts are Jack and Doreen Kennelly. And uh, in our next segment, we have Father Damien Schill. And he's going to be talking to us about architecture in our churches. And I think it's a good uh, follow-up on uh, the little bit that that we were talking about stained glass, the meaning of stained glass. And... uh, But before we introduce Father any further, I think Doreen has got one of her famous rib-busting jokes. (laughs) I do. And here's our joke, one of our jokes for this morning. Jack, what do you call a girl with a frog on her head? Um, strange? (laughs) Lily. I get it. (laughs) This is why our friends call her Dreen Laugh Riot <laughs> yeah, Canelli. <laughs> okay, Good Father. Morning, Father. Good morning, Father. Good morning. Good morning. Boy, we haven't talked to you for a long time. Good to have you on the phone with us today. Well, thanks. Yeah, do you want to? Will you introduce yourself uh, to, to to our listening audience? You know where you're, uh, where you are assigned right now, and um, you know just a little bit about your background that you're bringing to us. I'm Father Damien Schill. I'm the chief chaplain at the Minneapolis VA Medical Center in Minneapolis. And I've been here since 2000 and um, supervising a group of chaplains here and volunteers. My background is I have a uh, lot of education in art and architecture from Collegeville and St. John's and studied under Frank Kismarczyk when he was there. Okay, I, re- I remember, Father, when you were... Uh parochial vicar at our parish at Holy Spirit. I remember taking a class about uh, architecture in the church. And I don't know if... The, the one thing that, I, that I'm that i remembering is the name Pugin. And I don't, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you're going to talk about him today or not. But uh, anyway, uh, why don't... Um, well, let's just get into it. What does the church teach us about the place of sacred art in our churches? In architecture. And architecture. Well, art. Yeah, it- there's a lot of documents that go back and forth, and this covers, you know, centuries of work. But the the church doesn't choose one particular kind of architecture and said you have to, everybody has to have this kind. The idea is that over centuries and over time, each community kind of develops their own style. Like if you think medieval art, well, you think Europe. You think the basilica style, you think Italy, you know, and certain things like that. And kind of like after the Second Vatican Council, some people thought we needed to reinvent all the art and architecture in the church. Then you have um, extremes in, in kind of art. So you're, what you're saying, I, I love what you're saying, that the um, the church doesn't designate um, the style of architecture, but are there certain things that every Catholic church must have as part of their um Worship space, or as far as the design of a church, or the ascent, are there essentials? It depends if it's if it's a permanent church, you know, or a consecrated building. You know, there's different variations on churches. A lot of people think churches are all the same, but they aren't, because certain churches are consecrated and some are, are just blessed. I know when I was the pastor at St. Bernard's in Ariska, the church had never been consecrated, and so when we did a renovation of the church. 
Bishop Sullivan, as part of the renewal of the church, did a consecration of the church. So the church becomes a permanent fixture, so it's, it cannot be you know, removed as easily as a church that's never been consecrated. I don't know if that makes any sense yeah. to you or not. Yeah, yeah, there are canonical implications about it, you know, kind of a, a more of a permanence to it, it sounds like. Yeah, because if you look at the, even the history of our diocese, how many churches we used to have that no longer exist. Like St. Cajetan's, you know, it no longer exists. And even in, like, Warsaw, or Minto, there were two Catholic churches. And so they combined the two parishes into one, so then one building ceased to exist. And so it's, there's a whole canonical thing that goes with it. Father, could you just, this is a little bit of a, a sidetrack, but just for our listeners, could you just briefly explain what happens during a consecration when the bishop consecrates a church? The bishop consecrates, he consecrates the altar with the holy oil, the sacred chrism, and then he consecrates the walls. He puts some of the chrism on the walls. So it's like when you're confirmed or you're ordained, you receive the sacred chrism, and at baptism you receive the sacred chrism, so you're consecrated to the Lord, and it cannot be used for any other um, thing. And that's why with the closing of churches, the bishop is responsible to make sure that the bishop's that the when it's returned to a profane state that is not used for, you know, immoral, illicit things. That's why many churches that are um, torn down, if they're not sold to another religious community, so they don't become, you know, discotheques or bars or whatever. And that's happened to a lot of our churches in different parts of the country. When, uh, a few years ago, Jack and I had the blessing of being able to go to Venice, and Venice has, like, I think a couple hundred Catholic churches, and we walked into one that had been, um, it was no longer a Catholic church, but it was a museum of music. And there, and it was interesting to observe people walking into this beautiful church building uh, and the reverence that they had, even though it was no longer used for worship, but it was used um, for like concerts and, um, you know, something, I can't remember exactly, displays about, you know, music. Um, Would that be an example of what would have to happen when a church building um, becomes secularized again? Well, I think there's kind of a general rule of what can happen, but local bishops have a lot of authority to decide actually what does happen. And so the documents of the church basically say that, let's just say that in, in Fargo, if we decide to, the cathedral is no longer going to be, the cathedral is going to be, you know, closed. So everything should be removed from the building, you know, all the art, all the architecture, you know, the pews, all that sort of stuff. And the Second Vatican Council documents say the stuff should be warehoused. So that when another par- parish is opening or another parish has a need, all these things would go to the, to the new place. And so rather than selling it to antique dealers and buying it back again from them, doesn't make any sense. And so the diocese is supposed to have all these things put in one place. And I think in Fargo we have that that happening now. There's kind of a central area where things go. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Fargo does have that. I know uh, just from my work we've had uh, our hospitals have done some work on their chapels and we've been able to uh, get, you know, some architectural pieces, you know, from the diocese for purposes of those chapels. And I know uh, 
Saints Anna Joachim, I think, is a good example here in Fargo of uh, uh, using, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, items from other churches because I think a lot of uh, the uh, the fittings and some of the, even the architectural pieces I think are from churches that were closed in Milwaukee. Yeah, a lot of them came from St. Anne's in Milwaukee. Father, if a, going, getting back to a church building being consecrated by the bishop, if a person were to walk into a church, you said that you know what happens is that the the bishop puts um, holy sacred chrism on the walls and on the altar. Is there any way that I could walk into a church and look and say, oh, I know this has been consecrated? Yeah, if you look at the walls of the church, again, like you look at the cathedral in Fargo, and you go in, there's candles on the walls, like, you know, sconces that are mm-hmm. actually candles. That's one of the signs of a consecrated church. That's where the holy oil was put on the wall, and then that's, that's a, a sign, and then someone that anniversary of the consecration takes place, those candles are lit. Or when there's a, you know, like midnight mass or ordinations or something like that, then those candles would be lit to show the, you know, more festive occasion. That's how you can tell a church is consecrated or not. Well, that's an interesting piece of Catholic trivia for all of our listeners to impress their friends with. <laughs> no, that's interesting because you go into these churches and you see the sconces, and I'm thinking, is this just a a decoration, but no, they do have a real purpose. And that's one of the things that, you know, churches are different than they were in the past. There was nothing in a church that was not there for a specific purpose. We didn't put something in just because it was cute or, you know, I like this, I'm going to put this in the church. It was a reason for everything historically in the church. And then, again, after the Council, Second Vatican Council, things kind of loosened up a little bit. Then people didn't know why we had these things, like the wall sconces. People forgot, why do we have these, these wall sconces in the church for in the first place? And so then a lot of times things were removed, and people didn't understand what they were doing or why they were there in the first place. And, and so even your being on <laughs> the radio right now is so important because I think, think the average person, the average Catholic, even the above-average Catholic, doesn't know these things about the architecture um, of of our churches, it's uh, it's such an important thing I think to pass on. Right. I, I I thought you made a comment earlier talking about the uh, the place in Venice that used to be a church and the people's kind of response as they walked in. And it seems to me, isn't that what architecture, at least church architecture, excuse me, architecture is supposed to do? Is that when you enter, that you do have an experience. You know, for example, the Goth—is it the Gothic cathedrals that rose so high and brought you know directed your attention, you know, upward? And it seems to me that, uh, you know, yeah, at least that's what the Gothic cathedrals did. Now I don't know exactly if there's any sort of movement of any sort, Father. Maybe you can respond to that. You know, in, in modern architecture, as to which direction our attention is supposed to be directed. Well, our direction is supposed to be towards heaven, and that was the traditional and continues to be the um, way churches are supposed to be designed, is that, you know, like, you, again, like a cathedral in Fargo, if you come in the doors, you're in this tiny little vestibule. You know, it, it's nice, but it's not, you know, anything outstanding. But as soon as you open the doors, it's supposed to be like you're entering heaven. And that was the whole idea of church design, was that you're passing through this world, but then you come into the church, and you, you're into heaven. It was a foretaste of heaven. 
and that's always kind of been the traditional understanding of church. And I think that's kind of been lost some places. You enter Catholic churches now, sometimes you don't even know exactly what the place is. Father, we had that experience on a um, trip to Poland just after the fall of communism, and it was, you know, cinder block, um, black and white and gray everywhere, and we walked into the churches, and it was stunningly beautiful. It was just like walking into heaven, but we have to go to a break. And so we'll ask all of our listeners to stay tuned, stay with us. We're talking with Father Damien Schill about art and architecture in our churches, and we will be right back after the break, so stay with us. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Now is the time to stand up for life and dignity in Minnesota. Hello, this is Archbishop Bernard Hebda. Join Catholics across Minnesota for Catholics at the Capitol, April 15th at the Cathedral of St. Paul. Be formed in the faith, informed on issues impacting life and dignity, and sent on mission to transform our state. We will celebrate Mass, hear from inspiring speakers, and head to the Capitol in a Eucharistic procession before meeting with legislators. Get your tickets at catholicsatthecapitol.org. I guess my two favorite programs are The Journey Home, just because I love stories, and I love stories of faith, and so almost always delightful to listen to. And then Alcrest in the Afternoon is my second favorite. Um, he has so many book reviews, and I love to read, and, you know, so many books, so little time, but I love uh, the people that he interviews, and yeah, so those are my two favorites. Yep. I, I would agree. I, I really like uh, listening to the program Returning Home, but as Sean mentioned, I have a very early adoration hour, so I, I always listen to Mother Angelica and the, and, and the Holy Rosary on the way at 3.30 a.m., and, and then I and then usually, my at least in the, in the summertime, my routine is then headed out and run through a bunch of cows and whatnot, so I usually listen to, to Morning Glory and the Sunrise Morning Show and get all kinds of fun tidbits and some news, and, and it's really refreshing and enjoyable thing, something I look forward to when I step out of the church. Real Presence Radio is experiencing rapid growth and has an additional opening in the Rapid City area for a part-time listener relations coordinator. This person will assist with spreading the word about RPR, including help with the live drives, fall banquet, and major gifts. A qualified candidate should demonstrate excellent self-management and time management skills. If you sense a call to serve God in this capacity, please send a cover letter, your resume, and references to Brittany at realpresenceradio.com or call 877-795-0122. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. I'm here, I'm Doreen Kennelly with my husband Jack, and we are tickled to have with us right now uh, an old friend, Father Damien Schill, who taught both of us much about um, art and architecture and the purpose and meaning. And so I just want to say welcome back. And Father, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of teaching right now. You Earlier, you mentioned different styles of architecture, uh, like the um, Gothic, Romanesque, I suppose you could talk Baroque. Could you could you speak a little bit about 
each one of those and their how they are designed to enhance our worship of God? Well, some of it had to do with how much engineering people were able to do, because the older churches, back to the Romanesque period, were more heavy buildings, because they didn't have the engineering feet that we have. And so during the Gothic period, when engineering increased, you could make buildings higher, and you could have bigger windows. And so that's where the, the great cathedrals come, with the flying buttresses that help hold the building up. And then after the medieval period, then we go into the Baroque period, where you have a lot more gold design, like St. Peter's in Rome. That's the Baroque period. And then from there you go to the Rococo, which is then everything is covered. Think of the Palace of Versailles. You know, and that's, everything is covered with something. You know, there's no basic blank spots. And then after the Industrial Revolution, when there was so much steel and stuff that was being used, you could make any style church that you wanted. You could make a Romanesque style church that looked Romanesque, but really wasn't, because it was engineered in a way that Romanesque wouldn't be able to do it. And then with the in the American church, most people came from Northern and Central Europe at first, so they, the style of churches became very much this kind of Gothic sort of style they had at home. And then as more people came from Southern Europe, then you had the, more of the Baroque-style churches became popular. And so in North Dakota, most of our people were you know, Northern Europeans, you know, Irish and Germans and French, and so they brought those styles of art and architecture to our to our diocese because that's what they had known at home. So if I walked into a church, how would I know I was in a uh, Romanesque uh, church building? What would I... A Romanesque, is a, they have smaller windows normally, and it's, you know, very, a lot of stone and a lot of columns to hold it up, and then the roof is oftentimes flat. And we don't have I don't think we have a church in our diocese that would be true. Super Romanesque, okay. you know. Okay. And then how about um Gothic? What would what would be the character I'm I walk in and I go, Oh, this is Gothic. What what am I seeing? <laughs> I think well, Gothic read... have... Go ahead, Father, I'm sorry. <laughs> the um Gothic is like the cathedral in Fargo is, is the pseudo-Gothic style. It's got the tall tower, the large windows, the pointed arches. Everything was, with Gothic, everything was pointing up. Everything was pointing towards heaven. That would be the Gothic style. I think the Gothic is the, the ones you walk into and you'd say, wow. Yeah, that's like, you know, Notre Dame mm-hmm. and places like that in, in Europe, Salisbury Cathedral. Those were all Gothic-style buildings, and they lasted 500, you know, 800,000 years. And does stained glass have, you talked about the size of the windows, but when does stained glass enter into the, um, you know, the history of architecture? I think there's always was, you know, some kind of stained glass that was not developed by um, us, you know, in our time period. This is an ancient piece of thing, because even the Greek and Roman worlds in the pagan temples, they had not necessarily stained glass, as we understand stained glass, but they had colored glass, you know, you know, also where the light would come through, but you couldn't see into it. And as we got into the medieval period, when the churches, when the windows became much more important, and much more need for light, because remember, they didn't have electricity, you just didn't go in a building and turn lights on. And so everything was done by candlelight. And so once they were able to do the engineering to make larger windows, then they saw that, well, this is a way to design buildings 
or make it look good. And, and like in a traditional Catholic church, was always facing east and west, so the altar was facing east. So when you're praying, you're praying towards the east. And that we did that for a couple, almost 2,000 years in the church, but only in the late 19th, early 20th century did we start building churches that were not an axis like that. So when they were on that axis, the north side of the building was always the stained glass windows were from the Old Testament period, because the fullness of truth hadn't been revealed yet, because Christ hadn't come. So the north side was always, the windows were darker. And then on the south side, was the windows were brighter, because that's where Christ revealed us. He always had the bright colors and stuff on that side. Wow. <laughs> that is such a wonderful thing to know. I have a question about what does it mean to face east? Who's facing east? The congregation or Everybody the was priest? facing east. Oh, okay. Everybody was facing oh. east. So that, that's where we get the phrase, ad orientum. Yeah, everyone's facing the same direction. And nowadays, even if they don't have them, there's some places that they still have mass where the priest is facing one direction and the people are facing the same direction. It's not necessarily east anymore, but they still call it ad orientum. Okay. So the light, and, and what was the other, what were some other reasons for stained glass? The beauty? It was for education, because remember, people didn't read. They didn't have radio and TV and all that sort of stuff like now. And so people would go to the church and they could teach their children, you know, this is Adam and Eve and this is Moses and whatnot. Like they could look at the windows, you could read the windows. And so the idea was the windows, you could understand the windows. If you go into a church, you don't know what the windows mean. It's like, uh, what's that here for? You know, if it's so abstract that no one knows what it is, then it becomes just colored glass. It doesn't become a story. It doesn't become part of the catechesis that the church is calling us to. Right. For instance, someone asked me to look at a recent window that this place is designing new window, and it had two figures in embracing. And I'm like, okay, is this Martha and Mary, you know, or Elizabeth and Mary, or what is this? And they're like, no, this is Saint so-and-so and Saint so-and-so. I'm like, I didn't get that at all. And I got three master's degrees in theology, so I think if I didn't understand this window, I don't think the average person in the pew is going to understand this window. So why spend $50,000 on a window that no one understands if you're trying to tell a story? Yeah, it seems like the story aspect of the stained glass windows, it, it, didn't, it didn't come into the United States as well because I think, uh, you know, we're not that old. But if, if in the European churches, you, you certainly see it. I know when we were in uh, France a number of years ago, I can't remember which one it was, Rouen maybe, you know, the, uh, every window, uh, you know, where they had, uh, you know, each guild, I think, built a window, and they had uh, aspects of each of the guilds as well as the local history was built into some of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really what stained glass was for, it's to teach, to educate. It just didn't become, this is the glory of one person, like Joe Smith donated this window, you know, big, you know, thing about that. But what is the story in this window? Why do we have this window for? And um, one question I have is, in some of those huge churches in Europe, you can't see very well the windows because, I mean, the, the beauty is, you know, like in a Gothic cathedral or Gothic church is 
it's so high. It's really hard. To, it's really hard to see. I wonder, you know, how what they did, you know, in ancient times to to benefit from the the beauty and the the illustrations that the windows provided. Well, in that that time period, they also built churches for God. They didn't build churches for humans. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the whole church was designed for God. God's looking down on you, and you're looking up at God, and you you can never really see God or understand God. But you can still, you know, there's some kind of window up there, and it's some kind of saint. I don't know who that is, but that saint is, you know, going to heaven to God, and I want to go to heaven with God, too. And so everything was then forward-looking, mm-hmm. upward-looking. Yeah, so for any of our listeners out there who plan on going to Europe to see any of the Gothic cathedrals, maybe we should suggest bring along some binoculars if you really want to see some of the detail in the, the architecture in, in some of these Gothic cathedrals. And Father well, Damien Schell. Even here in our own country, you know, it's St. Patrick's in New York, or even the cathedral here in St. Paul, or the Basilica in St. Paul, it's the same sort of thing. You know, you can't see every little detail of the building because it's so high up. But, it, you know, when I think about it, it's so beautiful that they, they took as much... Um, time they invested as much into those windows like you said father um not for not for our edification but for you know for the glory of god and everything we do you know the jesuit model for the greater glory of god everything we should do should be for the greater glory of god and not for the glory of human human being Mm -hmm. we make churches we need a churches we need to sit we need to stand we need to kneel we need to be heated and all this sort of stuff but if we become so concerned about our comfort in the church, but we think, well, we can just, you know, have one old tabernacle over there in the corner, it doesn't really matter, then we're kind of missing the whole point, that this is God's house, and God's house should be the most beautiful house the community can afford, not what's left over from whatever. Yeah. Father, we're, we're coming up on a hard break here. We certainly want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, but before we let you go, would you give us a blessing? Lord God, we ask your blessing to send upon all those listening to this radio show. May they grow in grace during this Lenten season. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Now, we've been visiting with Father Damien Schell, talking about architecture in our churches. And uh, coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Father Riley Durkin, about going to the Sacrament of Reconciliation as a good way to prepare for Easter. So think about it. Have you been to confession yet? Stay with us. 